0: think that we need to get people on board with being prepared for anything, but you know, I think the bigger issue is that we're living beyond our means these days. You know, you want more than your parents had. They expect more for you than they had, and that's a message that's not sustainable.
1: We've got a long way to go in this country to creating a true culture of preparedness and creating resilient communities
2: from Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. This is Sound
1: Effect. Now here's your host, Megan Hayes.
2: Today I'm joined by Brock Long, Appalachian alumnus and administrator of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, who's joining us via telephone from FEMA headquarters in Washington, D.C., and Dr. Shay Tuberty, professor and assistant chair of Appalachian Department of Biology, who's here in the Greg Cuddy studio to talk about resiliency and specifically what it is and why it is important to plan for our environmental and social systems to have the capacity to absorb disturbance or disaster and still retain basic structure and functionality. So Brock, Long and Shay Tuberty. Welcome to Sound Effect. And thank you for taking the time to join this conversation today. I'd like to start with asking each of you the same question. And uh, Brock, if you wouldn't mind responding first, since you can't see each other to make eye contact. um, But my question is, what is resiliency?
1: Well, from where I sit as FEMA administrator, it's a community's ability to bounce back from disasters. It's that simple. But we've got a long way to go in this country to uh, creating a true culture of preparedness and creating resilient communities.
2: And Shay, let me ask you the same question. So yeah, resiliency,
0: I use that term almost interchangeably with sustainability. But resiliency to me means kind of elasticity. So being able to flow with the punches or grow with the punches, as Brock mentioned, just building infrastructure to withstand a catastrophe and then respond quickly afterwards with continued capability.
2: And Brock, can you talk about why resiliency is so important on a national scale?
1: Unfortunately, we're in a vicious cycle of communities being impacted by disasters and having to constantly rebuild. And it's almost as if we're not learning anything from what history, Mother Nature and history has taught us. Um, specifically, if you look at the last 16 months since I've been in office, FEMA has rendered more individual assistance, money into the hands of those who are uninsured to devastating losses, or public assistance money that goes into fixing infrastructure, we've rendered more individual and public assistance in the last 16 months than the agency has done in the previous 38 years combined. That's our entire history, basically packed into a year and a half. Wow. We got to stop the cycle. And so it's going to take different approaches. uh, And that's what we've been working on every day up here in FEMA since I've been in
2: office. Shea, can you talk about the resiliency work that you're doing regionally?
0: So here at the university, there's uh, a number of efforts to try to build our resiliency, and um, most of those have been around trying to deal with the flooding events here in Boone. So uh, along with what Brock just mentioned, uh, this is a a banner year for the high country as far as flooding events. I've measured six high-flow events so far this year, which is a new record in the last 40 years, and I suspect by the end of the week we'll have our seventh when um, these two feet of snow begin to melt and we get another inch of rain or so. So... um, Really, it's about flooding events, the impacts on town and county operations, folks that are living in the floodplain, and even university operations are impacted significantly when we've got, you know, Rankin West in the floodplain and having routine mud cleanups in the first floor from floodwaters entering the building. So this is something the chancellor's uh, uh, got her eye on and trying, we're trying to put more effort into it, and our emergency management office on campus is starting to plan for the future and... I think it's gonna have an impact on our building and um, and maybe raising buildings around the, the floodplain.
1: Shea, uh, back in the uh, the Clinton administration, Boone was actually designated a FEMA project impact community, one of eight pilot communities for that very problem that you speak of. So flooding in that area is obviously not a, a new issue in Boone, but because we're trying to pack so many people into such a crowded area, the built environment is adding to those issues. But I guess the real question is, when we made that designation well over a decade ago, what changes have actually occurred or been sustained to further reduce flooding, not taking actions or, or building in a manner that increases it?
0: Correct. So, you know, I think so far there's been $3, 4000000 million spent on restoration projects in different places on campus and downstream. And really, there's a number of us in the natural sciences that look at these as Band-Aids. They're really not preventing the problems. They're trying to make it look nicer. And so it's really more of a public perception effort than it is um, correcting the issues. And so I think on the, on the horizon, we're talking about daylighting the creek on campus and uh, decreasing the footprint of Peacock parking lot, which is you know enormous right now. And I think we could park more cars in a smaller footprint, open up more grassland, and create some wetlands around that that would be aesthetically pleasing and also functional. So those kinds of things need to be in our, in our future.
2: Brock, I'm not sure most people really understand FEMA's role in an emergency or disaster situation. I think we see FEMA on television, but um, I was wondering if you could tell us what FEMA does exactly. What can Americans expect from FEMA during, during an emergency, after they face a major catastrophe, and also, to your point, before those emergencies happen?
1: So, interesting enough, when I came into office, uh, our mission was not very clear to the public. I mean, it's a long-drawn-out definition that we've shortened, and we've made it very simple. You know, our our job at FEMA is to help people before, during, and after disasters, and our vision is to create a prepared and resilient nation. Now, to do that, uh, we have several divisions that work to accomplish many different things. For example, as FEMA administrator, I'm also responsible for making sure that the entire executive branch of government remains in a capacity to be able to meet its mission essential functions regardless of any threat realized to the nation, uh, which is a huge job, continuity of operations to the entire executive government. I'm also one of the largest insurers in the country. I run the National Flood Insurance Program, but basically coming into this job, I've learned that the National Flood Insurance Program is not financially solvent and the business framework needs to, needs to change there's a big myth on the need for flood insurance and people think that if they're not shown in a flood insurance, uh, special flood hazard area, that they don't need flood insurance for their home. And that's not true. Any home can flood. So, you know, not only do we run that program, we also run a preparedness program that puts out $2 billion worth of preparedness grants to prevent anything from acts of terrorism to natural disasters. And then we also have a very robust response and recovery division uh, which has been way too busy right now, you know, helping people save lives and put communities back together. Um, what we're really also trying to focus under our new strategic plan, we we developed a whole community plan that that has three very simple but ambitious goals that we're trying to get not only FEMA to move in this direction to accomplish, but all of the government down through the different layers at the state and local level, uh, as well as the private sector, to help us accomplish these goals. So, goal one is develop a true culture of preparedness goal two is to ready the nation for catastrophic disasters with a focus on low to no notice events like large earthquakes or wildfires like what we just saw in in paradise and then the third goal is reduce the complexity and cut out all the bureaucracy when it comes to how we can render assistance and specifically we have a goal of you know how do we rebuild these communities to a higher standard than the way that they existed before the disaster. And Congress has given us the authority to be able to do that through the Sandy Recovery Improvement Act.
2: Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like, how the planning FEMA does for natural disasters and other emergencies, including building the budget for Congress to act on?
1: Yep. So, um, so it, in the past, before the Sandy Recovery Improvement Act, we basically had only the legislative authority to rebuild a community to its pre-disaster condition. Okay, uh, which is a very regressive approach, and uh, it wasn't doing us any favors. And with the passage of the Syria Act after Sandy, it implemented what's called Section 428 of the Stafford Act, which is the guiding document of what we can and can't do at FEMA. Well, basically, this is a term for outcome-driven recovery to where now when we rebuild infrastructure that's blown out from a flood or a fire or hurricane or whatever, it allows us to do so in a mitigated and resilient fashion so that we're not rebuilding this thing again in the future. The other thing that happened that we're we're trying to wrap our head around was transformational legislation. I testified no less than 14 times in Congress since being in office and was begging Congress to do more about pre-disaster mitigation funding being available before disasters hit on blue sky days. And so with the Disaster Recovery Reform Act that just passed uh, several months ago, 6% 6% of all recovery dollars spent by FEMA in any given year will now be put up front in pre-disaster mitigation. So if that bill had gone into place last year, there would be roughly $2.5 billion this year in pre-disaster mitigation funding up for grabs for state and local governments to do large-scale mitigation projects. So for the first time in history, you know, we really have put a massive bulk of pre-disaster mitigation on the front end to start making a dent uh, on the back end, you know, to ultimately to save lives and reduce the impact of disasters on infrastructure and property.
2: Wow. So Shay, on the local level, you referenced this just a minute ago, we just experienced a record-setting snowfall event here in the high country. We're still digging out, um, some of us are, from that. Yep. Talk a little bit about what kind of impact this weather event has on our ecosystems here in the high country at the top of the mountain and also other ecosystems that are impacted by what happens here.
0: Well, there's a number of ecological impacts. Um, certainly the the depth of the snow and the weight of it impacts the vegetation here. And I think everybody's witnessed the broken limbs, loss of power. Although, you know, amazingly, very few people lost power up here, even though off the mountain we were hearing hundreds of thousands. So that says something about Boone and the county uh, as far as being prepared. And it also means that we've had so many damages in the past that we've had to rebuild in a way, like Brock was saying, in a way that's not going to just keep getting damaged. So that was good. But the other impacts have to do with how humans respond to the snow. And typically that's been met with laying down lots of salt in the streets. And so everyone in Boone that's been here any time over the winter knows that our, our roads tend to be salt encrusted at certain times, preparing for an oncoming snow or ice storm. This was no different. The good news is that they didn't lay down, you know, an extra foot of salt thinking that we're going to get an extra foot of snow. And so uh, the amount of salt that was put down was probably on par with what they usually put down. But as the snow melts and um, that salt is dissolved, it's moved right into the creeks, and that's kind of my my role on campus uh, with sustainability of water issues right now is is measuring not just the creek that runs through town, um, Kraut Creek or Boone Creek, but also you know another seven or eight that contribute to the South Fork of the New River. So Brock, I'm glad you brought up that uh, point about Boone being invited to be part of that study. You mentioned that at the football game with me and. You recollected that not a whole lot had come from it, or you asked me what had come from that? And, no, know, I, think,
1: uh, I think it's just interesting that, uh, you know, this was a program that was put into play, uh, gosh, probably, what, 15 years ago? And, yeah. And uh, to highlight that Boone has a real problem, but, you know, once the program died, the effort died with it. It was never carried on by the city of Boone.
0: <laughs> well, that's, you know, so I followed up with that comment you made with some of my friends that are on councils with the town. And uh, specifically the Water Council, (laughs) you know. So this is Kristen Cockrell, who's in our interdisciplinary studies and is kind of a policy expert in water issues. And she said that, you know, for years she's been trying to get them to think about how they can use our data from the several teams on campus that are focused on this issue to foresee the future and predict what's going to be a problem and start using that information to help guide them in their development of the town. Yeah. Um, and it's gone nowhere. They're not doing it, you know, and it's this is with a, a group of folks that are very environmentally, you know, sound. So yeah. uh, I, I don't know what we can do to bend their ear or change their their sense of policy on this.
1: Well, you know, Shay, I'm at a point where I have to start conditioning all the grants and the money that we put forward. And, you know, it, it's tough to put FEMA. I mean, we already have a hard time making friends, but getting <laughs> yeah. to the point where... If I don't start conditioning the grants of saying, you know what, we're not going to fix your communities anymore until you start passing building codes, land use, planning, and zoning. Yep. Yep. And then, you know, but you don't want to get to that point, like hold a gun to somebody's head to change. You would think that they would invest in the city and or the county or whatever it may be, that they would invest and do the right thing. But unfortunately, a lot of communities know that when stuff is damaged, FEMA comes in and fixes it. Yep. So we got to get to a point where we fix it once and then we're done. Yep. You know? Yeah.
0: Well, there was good news about the, the pushing the money to the front end, the six percent up front. You know, I did some some digging this morning after Megan shared the questions with me, and saw you guys have what four different grant programs, and one of which is you know pre disaster grants, and that's. Yeah. I think that's where things need to be going. You know, yep. that's and then also being able to spend the money in a way that you're going to make things more sustainable thereafter. Right. That's really critical.
1: Well, I believe the key to resiliency's got to start with the uh land use planning, building codes and yep. and zoning. Um until then FEMA's job's just going to continue to be more and more complex. And then and then the other thing too is we have got to educate citizens uh yep. over some bad habits yep. that uh yep. that add to the back end of FEMA. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. So one of the, um, you were talking about the impacts of this, that weather events have on our ecosystems and what impact that has on other ecosystems. So.
0: Correct. So, um, yeah, let me finish up that idea. So I was mentioning the, the, uh, road salts that are added to you know help people get around. And, you know, there's a lot of data that shows that the money you spend on putting rock salt on roads is, uh, repaid within 30 minutes, just in saved lives, um, damaged cars and, and other personal land holdings. And so it's, it's hard to make the argument that you shouldn't be using salt. Um, asking people to be patient and let the snow melt and ice melt isn't going to happen. So, and then there's numbers that you know are in the tens of millions for bigger cities. If you shut them down because of road impassability, you're losing huge amounts of uh, income. So, asking people to do that isn't going to happen. So, adding the salt seems like it's going to be something that's going to be around in a while. But what I've been looking at is the impact on the water quality. And that you know, basically, there are moments in Boone that the water is as salty as it is in the estuary environments where rivers are meeting the oceans at the coast. And so the animals here and the plants here that live in our streams are certainly not adapted to that kind of salinity. Um, and so we've been looking at the long-term impacts, short-term impacts, the pulsing impacts of uh, salt impacts to our streams.
1: Shea, you know, it's funny. You just triggered something that's um, a big problem for FEMA. Is You were saying that the lack of patience is driving some of the uh, decisions with how we attack things well the lack of patience is the biggest enemy of FEMA when it comes to the disaster recovery so um, often we're under such pressure to be able to restore critical infrastructure in an unmitigated fashion because people want their toilets flushing and power back on immediately that we're not given an opportunity to do things right uh, and rebuild in a more resilient fashion because of that very point and you know, one of the things that we've been trying to focus on is, as I said earlier, goal one, a, a true culture of preparedness, is we've got to go back and holistically review how we ask people to be resilient or prepared. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the amount of assistance that we put in the hands of citizens that were impacted by disasters over the last year and a half, the numbers are off the charts. It's millions of people that have received, I think it's probably over, you know, six or seven million people in the, you know, in the last year and a half that have received you know money physically in the hands, their hands as a result of FEMA assistance. Well, the reason that they get that funding is typically they're uninsured, underinsured, and not even remotely financially resilient or prepared. And so we're trying to go back and change our audience to work with financial advisors, educators, you know realtors, insurance agents, on trying to teach people how to become more financially resilient to have rainy day funds but then also to be properly insured. So what we just saw with the Paradise wildfires, which was the worst disaster I've ever seen in my life, is that people who are struggling in retirement financially are paying off their mortgages and then letting their fire insurance lapse. And then it becomes FEMA's problem to help them get back on their feet and kickstart the road to recovery, but FEMA can't make them whole. So there's fundamental problems with finances in the wake of what I call asset poverty or what's known as asset poverty, where people are spending more money than they make, and it's not allowing them to be properly prepared from a finance standpoint, and it puts more pressure on our agency. So we're having to go back and fix fundamental core problems and work with other entities to help us do so, and we got to get back into the schools and start educating people not only on that aspect, but wherever you live, there are inherent risks you know, that you have to be aware of and be prepared for, whether it's wildfires, hurricanes, or or, or earthquakes. And, you know, teaching realtors and those in the community that make communities work like realtors and financial advisors and insurance agencies to start saying, hey, mitigated homes are valuable homes. Everybody should have flood insurance because any house can flood regardless of what the special flood hazard map says. You know, so there's a lot of things that we're trying to correct and a lot of myths out there that we're trying to correct about what citizens believe or, or don't believe when it comes to resiliency.
0: Those are big issues, Brock. I'm, I don't, you know, I'm glad I don't have your shoes to wear. But um, I think this comes down, you know, one of the things that's becoming more part of the message here at App is, you know, in the sustainability culture is educating students about privilege um, in the United States and how other folks in other countries, you know, don't have that privilege. And what I'm talking about is sewage systems and houses with power all the time. And, you know, we get to the point where we can't withstand, you know, 10 minutes of not having our cable connection or our phone goes down or the, you know, our cell phones lose power. It's just like this, the worst thing that happened to you all day long, but it really isn't. And I think it's only when we have these disasters that people are reminded that they're living in a chaotic world that they have no control over. It, but they convince themselves they do. And I think your message that you're trying to get out through FEMA is the right one. I think that we need to get people on board with being prepared for anything. But, you know, I I think the bigger issue is that we're living beyond our means these days. And and that comes with that privilege. You know, you want more than your parents had. They expect more for you than they had. And that's uh, a message that's not sustainable.
1: Well, Shay, uh, you know, I couldn't agree more with you. And the other fact of the matter is, is that the key to resiliency is not a bigger FEMA or bigger response or better response. The key to resiliency is local officials starting to get elected because they want to pass building codes, land use, planning, and zoning uh, and smart development. We, we're quick to blame climate change. I believe the climate is changing. I believe climate variability and other intrinsic cycles since the 1850s, since we've been measuring data through the National Weather Service, reveals when we go through periods of increase and decreased periods of activity like hurricanes or whatever else, But ultimately, we have to accept the fact that the United States has some of the most dynamic weather patterns of anywhere on the globe, and we've got to develop in a more smart fashion to be able to live with those. And urban sprawl is putting people in harm's way. The built environment obviously increases the floodplain, and uh, we just really have to be a lot smarter about the way we develop in the future, because I'm telling you, FEMA is running on all cylinders and the wheels are about to fall off with the number of disasters that we're having. And in bigger FEMA is just not the answer.
0: Yeah, let's see. It's your point. You know, the data is out there. I mean, there's so many folks in the geography and planning department and the uh, appropriate technology and the built environment. They, you know, there's so much information that we're generating every day with student and faculty research and not just at app. Many, many academic institutions have kind of taken this as their main strategic plan. But folks just aren't using it, and it's the most frustrating part. Going to a conference where you got the world leaders in some particular area of science talking about what we could be doing, and you know how much more power we'd have moving forward. Yet you go to your local community politicians with those ideas, and like you said, unless you have the right ears to listen to it, they just you know a won't put you in a situation where you can even talk to them. Or if they hear it, they just don't have the power to make any changes. At least they don't think they do.
2: You know, one of the things that just listening to the two of you talk, first of all, I'm a little embarrassed that I was irritated that Walmart was closed the other day. Now that you're talking about the, <laughs> the lack of patience and privilege that we have. But I think that's an important thing to think about is, uh, and Shay, I, I guess this question is for you to at least begin talking about, what is our role as a university to build resiliency in The young people who are here learning every day on our campus so that they understand that we're in a chaotic world and they don't necessarily expect their parking space to be plowed within five hours of two feet of snow falling or um, have the problem solving skills in order to be able to negotiate when their exams take place so that they can, when they graduate, face some of these other difficulties that... Are going that they're inevitably going to encounter?
0: So that's a great question, and I think you know, two things come to mind easily that happen here at App as far as kind of celebrated efforts on campus and their impacts on students. And, and one of them would be service learning, and the other one would be the international travel and, re, and education efforts on campus. And, uh, and let me tell you why. So for service learning through the ACT program, the Appalachian and Community Together efforts, That takes students out of the classroom. And I think, you know, the classroom is part of that ivory tower culture where everything's perfect. Faculty explain how things could be perfect if only we did this or that. And some of the things we're talking about here. But if you take them out of the classroom and show them real people with real issues, and then have those students talk to them and say, how did you end up here at this homeless clinic? Oh, well, you know, my house went underwater. Or it burnt down in the fires we had last fall because of the droughts. And then you realize, you know, these people had normal jobs. All their kids were in school. They they could have been their neighbors. And so the students realize that they're only one step away from that. You know, the difference might be in that they didn't have insurance or they did have insurance. And then on the international side of things, you can take students out of their comfort zones here in the United States where, you know, you'll take them to communities in developing countries. Last year I was in Belize the year before in Puerto Rico, um, just before the hurricanes hit. And, you know, the students, even then, even when things were working on all cylinders in those countries, the students were still amazed that with such little resources, these folks could live happy lives. And in many ways, you can measure it, were happier than my students were. They have, you know, arguably everything they need. So I think that taking them out of their comfort zones, letting them witness that this is out there, changes them forever. One of the unexpected outcomes of the Belize trip last year is we had a rainy day, we couldn't go scuba diving offshore, talking about Privilege. Um, but instead, we picked up a bunch of trash bags and cleaned up the reef front right where we were staying on this little barrier island. The kids picked up 30 bags of trash. In 45 minutes. Wow. I mean, big trash bags. Um, they were in tears while they were doing it because they just realized that what they were doing was going to hardly make a dent. And all of that trash had ended up on that beach since the last class had visited the island a week ago. Oh, my god. So this is like, you know, this is what's coming ashore from a number of different sources, but including, you know, big cruise liners that are just dumping their trash at sea you know so everything that we were picking up were like plastic toothbrushes uh, disposable forks and spoons and knives uh, flip-flops sunglasses i mean it was just incredible the bulk of stuff that was coming there
1: megan i think once uh what are we teaching students at appalachian and not only that but what type of education are they getting from the k-12 up and particularly i go back to financial resiliency the primary gap and driver the assistance that we put out is no insurance. Now,
2: Brock, and Brock, this is for uh, all income, right? This is, this crosses socioeconomic yeah. levels.
1: It does. It's not poverty. It's asset poverty. It's people that make six-figure salaries that spend more than they make, and then they try to cut their costs. They're highly leveraged, and so therefore they're, they're not properly insured. They're not insuring their businesses or their homes properly. And some of the statistics are just – absolutely mind boggling that you know I, I've seen one that says seventy percent of Americans can't put their hands on five hundred bucks and it's not because they make a salary underneath the poverty level they make decent salaries they're just they've never been taught how money works they've never been taught the power of compounding they've never been taught how insurance works or credit works, and the credit score of every Appalachian student is one of the most important scores that they'll ever have in their life and You know, we spend a lot of time in schools, rightfully so, teaching them about how the human body works and how you break down the human cell and the parts of it. And mitochondria is the battery pack that powers a cell, or whatever. But we're not teaching them the fundamental basics of how the world works when it comes to money and insurance. And we often advocate that you ought to have four to six months worth of Operational cash uh, in an account, you know, in, in a safety account, in your own rainy day fund, and then you invest everything after that as much as you can, you know. And and to talk about the credit score, we got to think differently to tell you how important this is. We work with a uh, nonprofit called Operation Hope that provides free credit resiliency education to people who are really struggling but want to achieve financial resiliency. And John O'Brien, who's had to break negative cycles that you know he grew up in, his parents didn't know how money worked, and he talks about it. But he, he refers to the uh, most recent Baltimore riots or the L.A. riots, where communities end up burning down as a result of civil disturbances. He touts a statistic that says that no community with a collective credit score above 700 will have to deal with civil disturbances and having their city burned down. So think about that instead of saying we need more police to prevent riots or civil disturbances, actually what we need is we need to raise that community's collective credit score above 700 to prevent that stuff from happening. So it's a holistic change in the way that we are asking people to prepare. Because what's happened with FEMA is that our Be Ready programs of of asking people to go out and buy supplies for three to five days to be ready for the snowstorm or or, uh, the hurricane, has become an unrealistic financial ask that nobody's doing either. And we see challenges when it comes to asking people to evacuate. Hey, we need you to go buy a tank of gas, drive, you know, a couple hundred miles down the road and find a hotel to stay in. It's become an unrealistic financial ask for a majority of Americans, and it's not because they live in the poverty rate. So it's a, it's a fundamental change in what are we teaching freshmen coming in to uh, Appalachian State in my opinion.
2: Yeah, I think that what you two are hitting on, you know we started this conversation talking about environmental resiliency, but but we see this huge social impact as a result of natural disasters and, and huge economic costs. And, and so, um, Shay, on our campus, we teach and conduct research about sustainability using those three pillars, so environmental resiliency, um, social resiliency, economic resiliency. Can you talk a little bit more about how, how they go hand in hand? I'd like to hear both of you actually talk a little bit about that and how that plays out.
0: I think Brock's made some really good points about folks um, connecting the, the environmental impacts on people's personal holdings and the impacts on their prosperity, so I think it's easy to make links um, between the three. Um, it's, it's an effort an EPA. You know they've got these grants called P3 grants, which is People, Planet, and Prosperity. And it's, the idea is that you can create engineering and uh, scientific approaches to handling old problems that might be both a solution to an environmental issue and also create some income or prosperity for um, a group of. Uh, claims or stakeholders that are, are using it. So, um, another great example is using alternative energies that um, are taking a waste product and converting it into something else, either for energy or a product. And so, there's lots of kind of low hanging fruits to explain these kinds of situations. But basically, in the end, it comes down to that humans are part of the ecology everywhere we exist. We can't separate ourselves from the environmental impacts we're creating. So, when the fish gets sick, so are we. And that, I think the there's been an interesting um, effort in the toxicological world. I'm an aquatic toxicologist in the conference I was just at in Sacramento, uh, funny enough, the week that the campfire started out paradise. The last day I was there, I was smelling the fires and was no. left just before it really got bad. But there's a something called uh, One Health that basically looks at human health issues and environmental health issues and correlates them to the same causation. It gives you more power moving forward when people realize that we're all connected in some way or another. I think the three pillars are critical for people to understand. Um, I think it's kind of an academic thing to kind of help people make connections between them. Um, Once you've done it once or twice with some case studies, they start to do it on their own. I think they start to see that it's not that big a jump, and they can start to see the impacts, possible impacts of some of their activities they're invested in or not invested in, behaviors and their impacts. So it's it's kind of easy to make those connections once you've taught people how to do that. And I think that's a critical skill set moving forward in the
2: sustainability movement. And Brock, it seems like you've been a firsthand witness to that for close to 20 years now.
1: Absolutely, I've seen way too many communities devastated, but a lot of it boils down to a lack of a community uh, resiliency approach or mitigation approach. Um, look at all the construction that was done in vulnerable storm surge areas from basically Texas to Maine, and you know when we go through periods of increased and decreased hurricane activity, through whether it's thermosaline, haline circulation, you know cycles or El Nino. The bottom line is, is that we seem to fail to recognize that hurricanes continue to hit and will always be a part of living, you know, in the southeastern United States and the Gulf. And therefore, why are we not putting in proper land use planning and building codes? Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the most frustrating things is the state of Florida just struck down one of the most robust building codes in the country, the 2001 Florida Building Code. But you could see when Hurricane Michael impacted you know, the areas and the other storms like Irma last year, anything built after 2001, after Hurricane Irma impacted the state, survived and did pretty well. Anything built before that time did not perform very well. But yet, the state legislature, as I understand it, struck the law down last year. It makes no sense. Uh, I call it hazard amnesia. Uh, <laughs> we, we continue to, to not learn from these events and change building codes in a meaningful way. The predicament that it places FEMA in is, with all of the funding that we put out, my annual budget's roughly $16 billion, you know, at what point does FEMA say, all right, no more money until you pass a robust building code that fits the hazards associated with your state or your community? And we just start withholding the money back to force that change, almost like holding a gun to a community's head to do it. It's not the optimal way of going. But if we're not going to have communities proactively start electing officials and putting plans in place that are holistic in nature as a whole community plan for mitigation, then unfortunately, that's where I think government's got to go is to start driving this so that we're not through this vicious cycle again and again and again. One of the biggest problems that I see is I love the sustainability movement, particularly when it comes to power. I love to see green energy being put up. But I can tell you that every community I've seen where green energy is prevalent, none of it is mitigated for the disasters that the area faces. So if you look at the solar panels, if you look at the wind turbines in Puerto Rico, they were all blown out. And that is not easy infrastructure to put back into place. It's not as easy as stringing lines. So even the sustainability efforts of putting green energy into these communities, we're already doing it in an unmitigated fashion.
2: We're getting close to time. There's one question I wanted to ask you, Brock, in particular, because you, you had brought up climate change earlier. And I'm interested in how FEMA builds climate change impact research into its operating and strategic planning.
1: So it's not so much climate change as much as it is climate variability. We look at cycles such as El Nino, La Nina, haline circulation or the ocean's conveyor belt. There are definite patterns that increase and decrease activities. The question about a changing climate is how does a changing climate impact those variability cycles that uh, we know exist that impact our communities you know for example, El Nino oscillates every five to seven years. well El Nino to mean means less hurricanes in the Gulf and the uh, in the Atlantic Ocean, but it means freak nor'easter snowstorms in the winter and tornadoes in places that don't likely see tornadoes all the time. We look at trends uh, inside FEMA. Uh, I combined our Office of Mitigation, our Continuity Office, which has an incredible mission of making sure that the government works on its worst day, whether we're attacked by another country or it's just whatever uh, Mother Nature throws at us, I combine continuity, mitigation, and preparedness into one division called a new division of resilience. And what we've got to do is make a, uh, an investment into climatology and better understanding the impacts. But here again, regardless of what causes the disaster or the frequency of disasters to FEMA, regardless of what causes them, we're still on the hook for responding and trying to mitigate it.
2: So um, Shay, can you talk quickly? One of the things that has been really interesting to me is listening to you and Brock talk about not only that national level, but that local level in terms of government and the role of government. So can you talk about why you see it's important that government agencies, whether they're federal government agencies or whether they're local, utilize that type of thought process and, um, and climate change impact or climate impact um, uh, research in planning and prevention?
0: Yeah, I think that the importance of the climate change movement is basically that this isn't going away and this is going to be more prevalent. So when you say, you know, what's climate change mean to your region here? It means that uh, the rainfall levels over the course of a year may not change. So the totals may not change, but the intensity of the the rainfall events is going to change. So we get more flooding events. And so it's happening more commonly. And so those are the biggest issues we deal with. So how do you get your local government to think about the long game? How do you change, you know, Brock's made a big point about, you know, getting folks on board with creating building rules that are going to be protective of the long game. So trying to make buildings more sustainable. You know, and the problem with the way our politics run is that we're changing our people out every couple of years. Um, So you have to retrain the new untrained folks about the the long game. And so, um, you know, every four to eight years you're basically getting a changeover of the guard and those guard are responsible for continuing the long game but that's not happening i think um you know the amnesia that brought Brown. that's a great term um and that's exactly what it is is that you know it doesn't take very long for people to forget the damages that were done and then you also got people moving constantly it's, it's a different world where everybody's moving from place to place and and when they're doing that, they don't come with that institutional memory of, okay, this, is, this hurricane's going to hit here within the next five years. I can't build there. They just come in, spend a million dollars, put a house on the beach, and then it's gone the next year. And they're like, oh, no one told me. you know. So it's getting the locals to think about the long game and then building the infrastructure in a way that's going to be sustainable. It's going to be able to be there in 100 years. And I think that's where we're at. And I think getting those people in place is going to happen in the next generation because the kids that are in school now are getting it left and right. I feel belittled by my students often because I'm not doing something they think is normal practice for a sustainable world, although I'm the one teaching it. I love that. They push us harder and harder. So I think there's good things coming in the future that way.
2: Brock, are you optimistic about the future?
0: You have to be.
1: Um, You have to be. And you know what? I'm optimistic because, you know, finally, I think Congress has listened. I mean, as I said earlier, I think I've testified 14 times now. Um, But the first 12 of those testimonies was geared towards we got to do more in pre-disaster mitigation. And Congress acted the Disaster Recovery Reform Act catapults pre-disaster mitigation in the front. Now, what that means is, is that We've got to get local governments to start putting aside the match money for those grants and then really think through the mitigation strategies that would improve their communities, that would keep the roadways open, keep the communications infrastructure running, keep the power and fuel running, making sure that their health and medical capability doesn't collapse in the face of disaster. You know, just making sure that we're being smart with the way that we're expanding those communities. Yeah, I'm excited. I think people are, are starting to work together. I think we just have to... Uh, at some point, agree to disagree on the exact calls or whatever, but realize that we all got to do a lot more to mitigate and become resilient.
2: Before I wrap this up, do you two have anything that you did not say that you would like to get into this conversation?
0: Well, I'd just like to thank Brockford's leadership at the national level. and I think, you know, a lot of us that uh, know that you're in that position are really happy that uh, you came from App. It's another feather in the cap of the kind of students that we generate and the kind of leadership that we have here in our small town of Boone um, that has impacts uh, you know, worldwide. So keep doing what you're doing, Brock, and I thank you for those 14 times in front of Congress. I know that that must have been really tough to do. Um, keep sending the same message. I think eventually people start to hear it. It helps when you have more catastrophes. You know? So it's always getting worse before it gets better.
1: Nah, Shay, Megan, it's been an honor to be on this podcast. I hope we can do it again. And, you know, the doors to FEMA are open. So uh, if there's anything that we can do to uh, help Appalachian State students, come on up. We'd love to see you and show you what we do. And, you know, part of the problem is, is a lot of people don't understand FEMA's role, but it's very complex. And it's only becoming harder every day until we start fixing some fundamental problems that exist in our community. So thank you. It's been an honor.
2: Well, thank you both. This opportunity to speak with an esteemed and distinguished alumnus and also an esteemed and distinguished faculty member has been my distinct pleasure. So thank you so much. I um, heard the beginnings of a conversation under a tent um, at homecoming weekend and have been really excited about the possibility of being able to continue that conversation or at least listen to it a little bit. Bit more from my perspective. So I appreciate the work that both of you do very much. I think that it's making a really big difference in in our nation and our world and the future of our planet. So thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thanks
0: for organizing this, Megan.
2: Today's show was written and produced by Troy Tuttle, Dave Blanks, and me, Megan Hayes. Our sound engineer is Dave Blanks with assistance from Wes Craig. Our web team is Pete Montaldi, Alex Waterworth, and Derek Wyckoff. Research assistance comes from Elizabeth Wall, and video and photo support come from Garrett Ford and Marie Freeman. Our theme song was written and performed by Derek Wyckoff of Naked Gods. Our podcast studio is dedicated to Greg Cuddy. Special thanks to Stephen Dubner for the inspiration, advice, and moral support. Sound Effect is a production of the University Communications Team at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. For Sound Effect, I'm Megan Hayes.